I'm Nina Grenning-Loreyes and this is the Meet the Changemakers podcast, where you will discover imaginative ideas and unconventional perspectives on business and life from visionary minds and impact-driven leaders around the world. Together, we have one thing in common. We are obsessed with creating a better tomorrow and we are ready to make it happen. I'm very happy to have Michelle Moore on Meet the Changemakers today. Michelle is the founder of Mind Equity, where she's building a movement centered on harnessing and protecting attention. She believes attention is a most valuable asset, especially for knowledge workers and anyone who mostly thinks for a living. Balancing how we focus and disperse attention is the key to individual and team well-being, innovation, and effectiveness. Mind Equity supports knowledge worker organizations to better understand and manage attention. Her big vision for organizations to be able to solve the world's important challenges without sacrificing well-being. Michelle, thanks for making time to talk on Meet the Changemakers today. Thank you so much, Nina. It's a pleasure to be with you. Michelle, which part of the world are you joining us from today? Today, I'm in Toronto in Ontario, Canada. So before we're diving into your projects, we're recording this conversation in January of 2021. I'm curious how you are doing as we're facing this global pandemic and how it has affected your work. When I look at the suffering that's in the world, I, in comparison, am doing great. I have absolutely nothing to complain about. The way it's impacted my work is it's changed everything. You know, in January, I rolled off of a big engagement that lasted probably one and a half years, and COVID started at the same time. So I really had a year of creativity and a year of creation, and also a year of distraction of low productivity at times, a year of frustration, a year of learning to be friends in a new way with uncertainty. And, you know, when you asked me also, how, how am I doing? On the one hand, I'm really excited about 2021. And on the other hand, you know, we just went into lockdown like most of the world again. And sometimes I'm just so tired and so frustrated and just want to get on an airplane and go somewhere. And yeah, it's just this, these mixed roller coasters of emotions on a daily basis that it's, it's still there, but mostly I'm hopeful and excited about 2021. <laughs> Yeah, I can definitely feel you. And we're also still in a lockdown here in Germany. I definitely feel like it's been a roller coaster of emotions. When it comes to the mission of Mind Equity, which is to build a movement centered on harnessing and protecting attention, I can't help to notice that it's a very timely and urgent need for anyone, as you say, mostly thinks for a living. Can you tell us What was the impetus to start your business around this idea of not just personal attention, but organizational attention? Yeah, so I think the impetus really came from two places. One was the fact that I've been a knowledge worker my whole life. I'm a management consultant, and I've always been rewarded for thinking and multitasking, and it's always been a productivity challenge. The other thing that inspired me to start this movement was a prototype of 
a travel experience that I actually embarked upon with my daughter who lives in Armenia. And because I come from the mindfulness space, the yoga space, as well as the business space, I was intrigued by how can you create conditions for awe to arise, especially when you're traveling. So I got about seven friends together to come on this prototype, which was to be a digital free or a device free 10 day vacation, experiencing Armenia from the inside out without cameras. My daughter was to be the photographer and the videographer, and we were going to do this combination of slow tourism. And everyone was excited and in agreement about this in advance. Well, we get to Armenia and this device free idea really it just flew out the window. No one could do it. No one wanted to do it. And it turned out that I was the only device-free person on this trip. So I really became an observer. And I was so shocked, I would say, by the relationship with our devices that I was observing and, and shocked also by my sense of loss during the first couple of days of being device-free because I was not engaging with the device. So I observed my fellow travel mates during this entire trip, and it inspired me to begin to observe the workplace that I was in upon return. So I was working in a technology company at the time. My major client was a tech company. So I began to observe behaviors there, and I began to do research, and I really just noticed the complexity of this problem of focusing, the complexity of humans and machines interacting with each other, of our relationship with the digital and the physical all at the same time, and looking at my own self as, as a knowledge worker, as a management consultant, and how difficult it is for me even today, even though I'm in this all day long, it's still such a challenge to manage mindset and behavior and in particular, the culture that you're in. It's not just a tool situation. So those are the things that inspired me to launch the Focus Better Journey movement. We could probably say that with the pandemic and a lot of us actually moving into the home office or moving into a space where we actually spend more time with technology and with our devices than ever before, would you say that our relationship with our devices has even become more challenging, more difficult because of the pandemic? Do you notice anything? This is probably just anecdotal. Would you say people have an even harder time to find that distraction-free space? Absolutely. Especially if you're in a country like Canada, where we're in winter and we can't do a lot outside, it's even worse. Yes, the pandemic has exacerbated our connection to screens, and it has exacerbated the degree of disconnection between human beings. I noticed it in myself that at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this rush to be on Zooms, to replicate all the meetings that you were in any way in a physical space and have, you know, I had Zooms sometimes scheduled, you know, five to seven Zooms a day. After about a month of that, I was so tired and so unproductive, so ineffective, and really felt like my sleep was getting compromised. And I began to really limit, slowly limit the number of Zoom calls. And now I really limit it to 
three hours of Zoom per day, no more. I even try to do just one or two. So I think that fear of, oh, we're not able to go to the office or able to do a, do a talk or go to a marketing conference or anything like that, that fear caused me in any case to join every virtual conference I could find, to just be everywhere and to be on every Zoom meeting that someone invited me to, the fear of missing out kicked in because I was at home. This example, my own example is true for many of my colleagues, many people that I know, and, and I think it's pretty common in, in the world. And the other, the research that is out there that's interesting about Zoom is that the human eye cannot focus on multiple faces at a time. So when you're in gallery view in Zoom and looking at, I don't know, 16 people or even five people, the eye darts from box to box on the Zoom squares and it can't focus. So the brain gets, re that's why the brain gets so tired on a Zoom. A one-to-one -one Zoom is, is okay, but as soon as you have two or three or, or you know, sometimes we have a hundred people on Zoom calls. This is why we get so tired when we're in Zoom meetings. That is so fascinating. I did not know that. And now a lot of things make sense to me because I have been in the same boat. A lot of meetings have moved from real world meetings into Zoom. And it's the same for me. I sometimes spend five to six hours a day on Zoom meetings or in virtual calls. And now I will pay more attention to the difference between one-on-one -on -one calls and group calls. That definitely makes sense to me. And also the idea of your brain actually Getting tired was something that I heard recently on a podcast, on Brene Brown's podcast, actually. And I don't remember who she had on as a guest, but she talked about that there's actually research on your brain getting tired after a long, strenuous day of thinking or knowledge work, where we actually oftentimes don't acknowledge that we are more used to our bodies getting tired after a long day of exercise or manual labor. But this is also something that was an aha moment for me that I can actually, or I have to actually acknowledge that, yes, my brain is getting tired and it absolutely has every right to get tired. I'm putting it under a lot of stress. The interesting statistics around that, some of them come from Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism and Deep Work, is that knowledge workers, you know, we're on screens a lot, and we often have multiple tabs open, multiple devices on our desk, a phone, a laptop, another monitor, maybe there's even another device. And if we have notifications on, the task switching is even worse, right? So most people have notifications on, most people have two monitors open, and the phone on their desk, and they have multiple screens open on two monitors. So the task switching, this attempt of multitasking is what makes the brain tired. And what Cal Newport says in his book, Deep Work, is that knowledge workers to really create value have to do undistracted focused work. So, so put themselves in an environment where they're on one screen, no notifications, no multiple tabs open, no multiple monitors. So doing focused, undistracted, Deep work is actually only possible for a maximum of four hours a day. Knowledge workers are doing unfocused work all day long, and some knowledge workers have learned how to do a combination of deep work plus transactional work. And I think what 
happens is that the brain gets even more tired when we are constantly task switching and we task switch every time we look at another tab and every time we get a notification. And the stat that comes from the University of California and Irvine is that when we are interrupted, even by a child or by someone knocking on the door or by a notification, doesn't have to necessarily be a tech distraction, it can be any distraction, that it takes us 23 minutes to get back to the task that we were doing. So we also wonder how are we getting anything done in, in today's world? Yeah, absolutely. It's mind blowing. And I would like to go a little bit deeper into that because you actually have identified seven mistakes that hinder sustained value creation. And one of them is task switching that you talked about. And I would like to go into some of the other mistakes and uh, talk about them a little bit more. The first mistake that you point out is not knowing how much undistracted deep work is needed for sustained value creation. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Are we underestimating how much deep work we actually need for some of these goals that we're trying to achieve? No, I would say we're actually overestimating it. So when I sit down with people to ask this question, I have them draw a circle like a pie and put in that circle sort of the top four to six activities that they do every day in a work context. And then I say, okay, which of these activities really sustain or really contribute to the value that you are creating? Actually, I should preface this by saying everybody has to understand what their own definition of value creation is, because it's, it's going to be different for every person, for every job type, for every organization. So, so if that's not clear, this exercise is going to be difficult. But if you're clear on how you create value, then you begin to ask yourself the question, okay, which activities actually contribute to creating value? So the, so the big one is, oh, well, I spend this much time on email versus this much time you know, writing a research paper, for example. Email, people quickly notice, doesn't actually contribute directly to value creation, but writing the research paper does. And so people are overestimating that they, they'll say, oh, I, I would love to do eight hours of undistracted focused work per day because then I could just create value. Well, as I mentioned before, the brain can't handle that. And most people also aren't really noticing how they're spending their time. Many are not noticing that they're doing most of their deep work at night or on weekends because their organizational culture is really forcing them intentionally or unintentionally to be in an, a distracted environment all day long, jumping from meeting to meeting or from Slack channel to Slack channel. I think most people don't actually know the answer to this question or overestimate it. I think it's incredibly difficult for us to, like you said, to estimate and also to first and foremost become aware of where do we spend the most of our time in any given workday and then which of the tasks that we're, that we're spending time on every day are actually the tasks that do contribute to value creation and which of these tasks are just transactional there's nothing wrong with transactional tasks. There's nothing wrong with the logistical tasks. It's not to say that those are bad, right? The point just being is how do we harness this focused work time for the type of activities that really require focused work? What I personally find very challenging is, yes, I'm familiar with the task switching. And I also sometimes even write emails while I'm on a Zoom call or in a Zoom meeting, I have to admit. But what is 
bothering me even more is the time that I spend on reactive tasks, like corresponding to emails, answering chat messages, responding to phone calls, and so on. While I would rather spend my time on more proactive tasks, like writing articles, planning out campaigns, strategic briefs, calling journalists or partners or other stakeholders to discuss the next steps for a project or a collaboration. All of that work, I find for me, falls by the wayside because there's so much on my plate when it comes to these reactive tasks, things that come into my inbox, things that are pinging on my chat messages and the impulses there that I need to answer to those messages because somebody wants something from me. Somebody has asked something from me. Can you speak a little bit more about that? I'm sure I'm not the only one who is struggling with this and what you usually do when you work with clients on how to address this challenge. You've noted mistake number seven, which is what I call the abdication of responsibility to we have no choice. Instant response in this digital age is here to stay. And that's just a belief. And, you know, you asked me in the opening question, why did I choose to work with organizations rather than with individuals? It's really because of this point, because we are so impacted by the collective, by our collective team and by our collective organization, that what you're experiencing, which many people are experiencing, this, this I have to respond to emails or, or other things that people want from me, is really about the organizational culture and the culture of the leader that is, is your boss or managing your team, or you yourself if you're managing a team. So if as a leader, or if the organizational culture itself has this collective mindset of, we have no choice, we must instantly respond to everybody. The starting point kind of is there to ask the organization or the leader the question, okay, how much do you value attention? Is attention important in this team, in this organization? And of course, if it's a knowledge worker-based organization, pretty quickly they, they will realize, yes, of course, attention is, is valuable. We certainly know from the rise of the attention economy how much Facebook values our attention. Well, as leaders and as organizations, are we valuing our attention as much as Facebook actually does, right? That is one question. So we start with this question about, okay, if you value attention, then let's dive deep onto when is instant response really, really necessary? Well, I would argue it's necessary in any life-threatening emergency, for sure. It's necessary in however you define what an emergency is in your work. You have to be reactive to those emergencies, especially if they're life-threatening. But in most of our lives, in knowledge worker lives, you know, we're not in the operating room or in a hospital. Yes, we have deadlines. Yes, we have clients. But what is the culture of response to emails and Slack channels and other things that is truly necessary. And it's, so it's breaking that down and starting to define that and be really clear with the team of, yeah, it's okay to do emails in the last hour of your day when you have finished your deep work. And why don't we set up an agreement or a behavior norm in our team that we respect everybody's 
attention and that if it's truly an emergency, that we're going to have this particular channel for that. And everything else, it's okay to check email in a time slot once a day. That's sort of the simple start for, for investigating this instant response issue. One question that I have that might apply to some organizations, not all, is that we sometimes have colleagues or coworkers that are in different time zones. And have you experienced any organization that has been dealing with this? And how did they go about solving this? This is a common problem, especially I think it's going to increase because we can begin hiring people from anywhere in the world as remote work is, a lot of it's going to be here to stay even after the pandemic. So the team that I have worked with dealing with this internationally went through this exercise, first of all, of understanding per job role, what is value creation per job role or per team objective or team purpose, which types of communication need to be handled within X number of hours and which do not. This is a work design issue. So first we're understanding the current state, what makes sense, and then how do, how do we design work such that the time zones are also managed? So you get this heat map of the value creation portfolio for each job role, and you get it for the team as a whole, and you overlay that in the different time zones and do a planning around how do we maximize the protection and harnessing of attention given this situation. And where do we need to compromise? And the point being is there's this open discussion and this transparency about roles and value and time zones and what is instant and what isn't. It's, it's a complex work design challenge. The thing that's difficult is sometimes getting the leader or the authority on board that is able to hold space and transparency for that kind of dialogue to happen such that a culture of protecting and harnessing attention can actually arise. Because you as an individual in, in such teams often do not have the control. You just have to succumb to what the behavior and the unwritten agreements are. And that's why this is such an organizational issue. What I find really most intriguing of all the mistakes that you list is this one here favoring data analysis over instinct, body wisdom, and the human sensing experience. Can you talk a little bit more about our preference for linear and analytical thinking, especially in the Western world? Why do we favor data analysis so much? And where could we lean more into our instinct and body wisdom? This is also one of the most interesting topics for me personally, this balance between intelligence and wisdom, and that there's actually a difference. And so I don't know why this happened, but in our society and in the industrial age, the reliance on analytical work and data increased when we began to automate. Then we moved into the information age and we began to automate even more. And now we're in this age of creativity, right? The 21st century is supposed to be the age of creativity and empathy. I, I honestly, I don't know why we favor data analysis so much 
I think it is because the systems, the educational systems have rewarded this. I have an MBA and I worked in consulting for more than 25 years in PricewaterhouseCoopers and in Ernst & Young. And I was rewarded for intelligence. I was rewarded for analytical thinking and metrics was gold. And that is still the case mostly today because there's a belief system in that systemic world that we have grown up in, that that is the way to innovate and that is the way to achieve high productivity. What has happened is this balance between intelligence and, and wisdom has gone out of whack. And so this over-reliance on data and machines has caused us to be out of touch with collective intuition or collective wisdom and personal intuition and those gut feelings and aha moments, because I think it's easier sometimes to rely on data. It's easier to say, oh, here's the data. Let's move on. Let's just make all of our decisions based on this data. Frankly, there are viewpoints out there that over-reliance on data is expunging creativity, is expunging diversity of thought. It is exacerbating the problem of exclusion of people who actually could contribute more if they were able to express their creativity more freely or use play or embodied practices in their innovation work, for example. So I think it's a true issue of balance because I'm never advocating for let's get rid of intelligence, let's get rid of analysis and metrics. Absolutely not. The point that I make is that we need to go back to noticing the data sets that actually come out of our human beingness is what I would say. Yeah, I definitely can see that. And what I'm missing often in my daily work is it's oftentimes just this plain set of data. And we, I find too quickly come to draw the most obvious conclusion, maybe. And sometimes I would like to see how we can engage in somewhat of a dance almost where we go from analytical thinking to this kind of creative approach and go at it from, okay, how can we maybe then use these numbers for creative thinking? I don't know if we would maybe also need to engage cross-functional teams around the data, because I could imagine that somebody from a, a creative background, maybe a designer, would look at the same set of data differently than somebody who is an engineer or a programmer. It's an interesting point you make because I worked at StageGate International for a while here in Canada and StageGate invented the StageGate innovation process for new product development. In this process, one of the big ahas, and this is already 20, 20 years or more old, in this process, 
the StageGate methodology advocates for cross-functional team engagement across all stages of new product development or new technology development. And what you're articulating in your team is that you're still operating in silos. So I think innovation teams, especially in the major Fortune 500 companies who have adopted this StageGate methodology, have implemented the cross-functional team dimension, but other departments and organizations often have not. And so there's this absence of diverse and inclusive thinking. The other thing that I would say, Nina, is that I think the data set is one piece of information. And I think another piece of information, it's almost like we have two boxes of of info. We have the box of the analytical and the data, and then we have the information box that comes from generative dialogue, that comes from listening, that comes from using innovation toys like Lego Serious Play and Agile Games or the Empathy Toy to cultivate creativity and vulnerability that creates a whole nother data set. And so let's go and approach this challenge we're working on together using some different methods, using some embodied methods or creative methods or play or generative dialogue to ask ourselves questions in a new way related to the same challenge that the data set is trying to address. And then looking at both sets of data, right? Then you have data coming out of analysis and data coming out of more wisdom practice. And then you have a complete set from which to make decisions or take action or create new things. Yeah, that makes sense. And what I wonder then is, do organizations need somebody in charge of cultivating these wisdom practices? Do we need facilitators who help teams with gathering this additional set of data? I mean, maybe in product innovation teams, that is easier than in other teams. I'm just coming at it from a marketing mindset and from me being in a marketing team, which is oftentimes very much separated from the product development team, I wish there was somebody in the organization who would take on this wisdom practice facilitation, right? Yeah, my view on that is a new silo doesn't need to be created. So either somebody like the head of innovation or the CEO or someone who has the ability to inspire cross-functional teams, you know, someone at that level in the organization who has that authority and that ability to inspire is the person ideally who proposes to just add another tool set into the toolbox for solving challenges and for value creation into cross-functional teams. That is the ideal state. But often you have someone in a department who becomes interested, let's say in agile games or the empathy toy, and will propose it through a channel like HR and say, especially with the empathy toy, you see this happening because empathy is is viewed as a social skill, which it is, and as something that is HR's problem. And sometimes you have the champion being HR of, okay, let's, let's train our leaders in empathy, vulnerability, and bring in the empathy toy to do this. And then you have it a bit stuck in a siloed part of the organization too driven by HR. When you have the good fortune of a leader 
that is able to hold space for allowing these new practices to arise to simply complement existing practice and integrate them into existing processes and not do this as something separate. That is the ideal transformation. What is interesting is that in many of the major Canadian banks, they have adopted empathy toy training across many levels of management because they saw that this important 21st century skill was lacking and they have actually done this cross-functionally and at different levels of the organization. So that is one example of where it is happening. The other example of where it's happening is in Scotland, the Scottish Civil Service is and has used now for several years some of these wisdom practices from the Presencing Institute at MIT to transform their civil service to be more client-centric. For those who don't know what the empathy toy is, can you quickly describe what it is and how it would help organizations? Sure. The empathy toy is a toy that was originally created as a blindfolded building block puzzle to train children in schools on empathy. Now it has proliferated into the corporate world. And why is that? Because teams sit down at a table, you have builders and guides, and the builders and guides are blindfolded. There are many scenarios of, of playing the empathy toy, but I'm just going to illustrate one. In one scenario, the guide will, unblindfolded, will first build a structure out of between two and five game pieces and will then be blindfolded and have to describe this structure to builders who simply have five puzzle pieces in front of them. And it could be one builder, it could be two builders, it could be three builders. And just based on verbal communication, they try to build a replica of the structure that the guide has built. That requires empathic listening and empathic communication to occur for that to be successful. So, so many debrief points arise out of that. I facilitate the empathy toy in groups. It's just fascinating and fun at the same time. Just switching gears for a moment here. So if you could think of the world 20 to 30 years from now, what kind of world do you see? The very optimistic view that I have, the optimistic hope that I have is that 20 to 30 years from now, our existential risk caused by climate change issues and caused by technology taking over humanity, that that risk is way down. And what, what does that mean? That means we've retained our humanity. We've retained our human ability to be connected in a meaningful way with other humans. And we have become the masters of our tools again. We have become the masters of our technology. Technology has not taken us over. That is, that is my optimistic view, that that's what the world will be, and that we will have gotten climate change issues under control. Those two things are threatening us right now. Mm -hmm. uh, greenhouse gas emissions are threatening us, and technology controlling us, that, that is the other existential threat. Mm -hmm. And so my vision 20 to 30 years from now is that we have that, we have that under control. Are there any lessons or any Any advice maybe that uh, you can share with other change makers, 
something that you've learned on your journey so far? I think what I learned this year was this having courage to feel collective pain and feel collective grief. And I didn't reach the, this learning on my own. I, I read a really interesting book by Joanna Macy, who is a deep ecologist. She wrote a book uh, that came out this year called A Wild Love of the World and introduced to me for the first time this idea that creativity and change often come out of sensing into deep pain, grief, or despair. And that actually leaning into that difficult emotion or difficult state enables us to overcome and to create or innovate our way out of it to make the world a better place. It moves us to act when we can actually sense into collective grief. So that, that's a really new learning for me. The simple learnings are focus on the present moment, be optimistic, be future focused, and be aligned with your purpose. That's, that's how I would answer that question. Mm -hmm. Is there any other change maker or maybe even several change makers that inspire you personally in your work? I'm really inspired by people who demonstrate extreme courage. Some of the investigative journalists do that. You know, when you look at Maria Ressa from the Philippines, who risks jail constantly because of the free journalism that she promotes and writes about. When you look at Laura Poitras, who made the, the movie about Snowden, Citizen Four, who also risked a lot to make that film, or, or even recently, the, the Russian activist Alexei Navalny, who willingly goes back to Russia after recuperating from an assassination attempt on, on his life, and, and willingly goes back to his country knowing he's going to be arrested and, and put in jail. This is an example of courage, an example of a change maker who puts himself last. He puts his movement and his country and his people first. I mean, those people really inspire me, people that have that much courage. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So for you personally, maybe, and also collectively, what would you say 2021, what kind of year would you like to see? So for me personally, a year of creativity, a year of continuing to learn, to sense into that uncertainty. And we are in this 21st century that is, is by many being called the century of creativity. I'm hoping that for many, many others, it is also a year of, of new, new arisings and a different creativity, a more emergent creativity. Michelle, where can people find you? People can find me at mindequity.ca. My LinkedIn is Michelle N. Moore or Michelle Natalia Moore. And I'm also on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is presencing underscore CA. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. This was such an interesting conversation. I am taking a lot of ideas and just a lot of inspiration with me for my next week and for my 2021. So thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nina, for asking such thoughtful provoking questions that are both personal and collective at the same time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meet the Changemakers podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found inspiring, instructive or hopeful? 
can you think of anyone, maybe a friend, colleague or fellow entrepreneur, who would appreciate this conversation? If so, take a second and share today's episode with them. Because together, we can make it happen and build a better future. Until next time.